This is The Spectator Podcast. I'm Lara Prendergast. This week saw world leaders assemble at the G7 summit in Biarritz, where Donald Trump insisted that Boris Johnson is the right man for the job delivering Brexit. But as reports emerge of long-term resident EU nationals being denied permanent residency, we ask, has the president's anti-immigrant rhetoric rubbed off on the prime minister? We also talk about the ongoing fires in the Amazon. And finally, we ask what's really behind skyrocketing homelessness. First, is Boris Johnson living up to his promises to EU nationals? For all the assurances that their lives will not be disrupted by Brexit, it seems that with Boris at its helm, the new government's policy towards EU nationals has been a little more hostile environment than liberal conservatism. In this week's cover piece, Fraser Nelson finds that an alarming number of long-term resident EU nationals are being wrongfully denied permanent residency. He argues that this is a betrayal not only of Britain's duty to its citizens, but of the PM's own values. Fraser joins me now to discuss, alongside Sunda Katwala, the director of the identity and integration think tank British Future. Fraser, your cover this week looks at the confusion over Boris's immigration policy for EU immigrants. Can you start by explaining to listeners why you think things have become so unclear at this stage? Well, it's striking that when you know, the spectator backed Brexit, when Boris Johnson was arguing for Brexit, it was very clear or made very clear that this wasn't a little England agenda. This wasn't about hoisting the drawbridge up. This wasn't about, as Boris Johnson himself put it, standing on the cliffs of Dover and flicking a V sign. And importantly, every EU national would be told that they could stay. This wasn't about destabilising them. It wasn't about one neighbour turning on another. Anybody who was an EU national who'd arrived in Britain, was working there, could stay, no questions asked. And on his first day as Prime Minister, Boris Johnson reaffirmed this. Theresa May had not been keen on this. That's why the spectator didn't back her for um, leadership. But Boris was going to right this wrong. And this clashes with what we're hearing now. It's a steady stream of small stories of people saying, I've been living in Britain for 30, 40 years. I applied for permanent status and I was told that I wasn't going to get it. In some cases, they've been told they're going to get temporary status given five years. I mentioned in the piece a, a baker in Somerset who's had a shop there for 30 years and he's been given a five-year stay and this is, of course, it's not just appalls him, but it appalls his customers because they are asking, as he is asking, is this what Brexit is really about? We were told they weren't going to destabilise the EU nationals, but now they're getting letters saying they've got five years left in the country. Surely this is going wrong. And when things do go wrong, it's the role of journalists to highlight them. And that's what we're, we're doing in this week's issue. Cinder, in your line of work, have you come across... EU immigrants who've also found similar struggles to what Fraser outlines in his piece. Yes, there's been a lot more uncertainty in the last week or two about this issue. As Fraser says, there was a very clear commitment from the Leave campaign that while there'd be new rules on immigration after Brexit, everybody here needs to be protected. I think it was the argument of Michael Gove and Boris Johnson in this leadership campaign that Theresa May had been too slow too grudging about that and they should go further. Michael Gove was talking about free citizenship. There's a clash, though, between two things the government wants to do. Say we'll end free movement on Brexit Day and say we will definitely protect the Europeans here. It's the biggest thing the Home Office has ever done in its history, register three and a half or four million people for a new system because we've never had any records about who they are. So the government has given itself till December 2020 
to register all of the European nationals and said, do not worry, your employers will not ask you But do we know what happens in that the period? Well, on the 31st of October, October, October the new policy is we will definitely on day one end free movement. Now, you can fudge this. You can say we will end free movement in its current form. We will ask nobody for new documents for another year and a half because everyone's still registering and we will let all the Europeans who are new come into work because we will not be able to tell the difference between someone with an Italian passport who's lived here three years and somebody with an Italian passport who has just arrived at Victoria Coach Station. In January, they had a no-deal plan to, to fudge this really, and to say free movement in law is ended, but we carry on till 2020, we can have a new immigration system in 2021. What the government has done is it's torn that plan up and said, we'll end it on day one. And it's also said, don't worry, European nationals in Britain, nothing will change. You've still got another 15 months. And it's impossible to see how those two things go together. Fraser, what do you think this tells us about Boris? I mean, were we wrong to think he was a liberal character and he's actually sort of showing his true colours right now? I wouldn't say that. I think Boris was and is quite sincere about wanting to create a liberal Brexit. I think that he is unusually pro-immigration for a Conservative cabinet member. He describes himself as being passionately pro-immigration. The problem is that it's all very well for an individual politician to think that. But when you get in the office of prime minister, this has got implications, especially if you're leading a party that's trying to win votes back from the Brexit party and Nigel Farage. So if, for example, Boris Johnson were to say, I want to give amnesty to all uh, to illegal Im- immigrants who've been here for many years and behaved themselves, that's perhaps one of his most radical ideas. It's not a policy because he's not proposing it. But if he did propose it, he might get an election electoral backlash from voters who think, OK, we're going to stay with the Brexit party. So I sense a tension between Boris's liberal instincts and where his advisors think the easiest way is to win an election. Because remember, the government right now is on election footing. With a prorogation, for example, it's quite possible that the MPs think the only way they can stop no-deal Brexit is by forcing a general election, in which case you don't really have the luxury of of coming up with a radical new plan for people. As, as party leader, you'd have to win an election the best way you can see how. At least that's the classic Tory logic. But the thing is, now people's view is changing on immigration. Now that they've got control over the borders with Brexit, they're far more relaxed about it. And I think the old Tory mindset that you get more votes if you're being fairly illiberal. And if you say, lock people up, let's be tough on migrants, you get more votes. I think that equation doesn't work in a way it perhaps did 10 years ago. After Brexit, there's a great chance for Boris Johnson to form a kind of consensus along the lines of his liberal Brexit. I think it could help bring the Tory party together and it could help heal the wounds um, that were created by the referendum result. But to do it, you need to basically apply leadership. And perhaps that's asking a bit too much of Boris Johnson now that he's got so many battles on and so many fronts. But what I say in the cover article is it would be a great shame if this liberal conservatism that has been Boris's trademark were not to be put into action at just the right time where I think the country is ready for a new conversation about migration and an answer, a rather uplifting answer to the question, what kind of country are we going to be after Brexit? Cinder Fraser says this is an electoral policy, but I mean, do you, do you think there's a chance that it could backfire for the Tories and end up being quite a damaging position for them to have taken? 
there are different electoral pressures on the Conservative Party. You worry about losing votes to the Brexit Party and you worry about losing votes to the Liberal Democrats. And therefore, a bridging message on immigration is actually quite important. Electorally, as, as Fraser says, attitudes have changed quite a lot. It's dropped right down the priority list. It's at number nine. It was at number one and two before we had that referendum. So there is that sense, which is what Boris Johnson believes, I think, which is that when people want control, they don't want to shut the borders. They want to make choices and they will use those controls pragmatically. He did something very liberal on day one as Prime Minister. He dropped the net migration target in a bin. I mean, you've missed it 40 quarters in a row, so it won't be much missed. But he said he doesn't want to play a numbers game. So when he talks about an Australian point system, he's saying Britain will have control, but then we'll be open to skills, we'll be open to students, we'll be open to scientists. And actually, attitudes are very pragmatic when it comes to people picking fruit and working in care homes as well, but people want that managed. So you could actually have a popular immigration policy that was balanced, that was pro-integration, pro-citizenship, and actually you could keep votes away from the Liberal Democrats and the Brexit Party. But Boris Johnson would have to have the confidence in his own instincts that he can actually sell what he believes that immigration well-managed can be good to Britain to the public instead of going with this idea that whoever's toughest will always be most popular, which, of course, the Windrush scandal showed us is more complicated than that. And Fraser, just finally, you talk in your piece about this being possibly another Windrush. I mean, why, why exactly do you think that is? Because we can see the same mechanics that brought us the Windrush debacle at work. We can see a home office where when people apply to them for a status, they're almost looking for reasons to fault them. And we can see a sort of computer says no mentality, which is supplanting what ought to be the generous policy that the prime minister is promising. So it's okay for him to stand up in the dispatch box and say that anybody being here for five years will get approved no matter what. That's fine, but it doesn't really count for anything if people who have been here for five years and a lot longer than five years are being told by the Home Office that they can't get permanent status because they have been able to prove this out of the other or their paper might not have been in order. This is as easy or as difficult as the Home Office want to make it. And if they do allow themselves to succumb to this bureaucratic mindset that was behind the the sort of the heartless approach to the Windrush migrants, then we're going to get lots more stories, not just about French bakers, but about, you know, Polish mechanics and Dutch doctors, people who have built their lives in Britain, all of a sudden getting letters, being told that they've basically got five years. Now, the government sees this as, okay, this is good because we've, we've, they've actually succeeded in being given a five-year licence. But it completely changes your outlook. If you've gone, lived all your life thinking you're a settled member of this country, you've got a British wife, you've got British kids, you are as British as Boris once put it as Tizer and wife runs, and yet you find yourself in the position of having to register with the Home Office, apply, almost ask for your right of residency to be given to you when you had been told that that right was there because of your contribution to the country over decades. So there is a mismatch between the human stories behind all this and the way it can be reduced by bureaucrats to um, filling in the right forms. And I think the Conservatives should learn the lesson of Windrush and work out that you have to take a a sort of human, compassionate route to this. You have to have a presumption of saying yes to any EU national who applies for residency unless there's a very good reason to say no rather than the other way around. And unless number 10 can actually 
exert itself on the Home Office and make sure that they are doing things as the Prime Minister wants to do it. I think we can see these individual stories, heartbreaking stories of upset piling up and being and giving not just Brexit, but the Tory party a very bad name. Cindy, do you think that's a fair concern in phrases that this could be another wind rush? I think it's bound to be a problem because if three and a half million people have to apply, even if you get to 95% and 99%, it will actually be bigger than Windrush when there are still 100,000 people who haven't made it. So you're going to have to have a rule at the end that says everybody who was eligible should still be eligible and the cutoff shouldn't work. So I think they've worked really hard on the system, but we're now getting really mixed political messages. There was a principle here, which is that new rules apply to new people and we should be as generous as possible. Michael Gove said we should give free citizenship to every EU national who wants it. And actually, if Boris Johnson did that, actually he could turn the page on this issue and say it's not just a message of welcome, it's an active message that you're all welcome. And then we'll have new rules for new people and they'll be quite generous to people who want to contribute to our society but will choose who we want. So if you don't promise the earth on day one, if you're if you do the right thing by the people who are already here, you can have your new immigration system, but you won't get it until you've got time to design it and build it. And that will be 2021, not November the 1st, 2019. Thank you, Fraser and Sunder. And I'm now joined by Anna Amato, one of the affected EU nationals who Fraser mentions in his piece. Anna, you arrived in the UK from Italy aged two with your parents, and you've lived here since 1964. But as Fraser mentions, you've had your application for permanent residency rejected, despite the fact that the government has promised that anyone who's been here for over five years should have permanent settled status. Can you take us through the application so that listeners can understand what you've been through and why you think that your application was rejected at first? So I was refused because I couldn't prove that I've lived here for a five-year continuous period. I didn't tick their boxes. The thing is, it's for me to prove. Other, to prove. They don't have to say to me, you've been here, you know, I have to prove it. And if you can't prove it, what do you do? It's virtually impossible. I've tried. I've, I rang them up. I asked them, you know, what do I have to do to prove it? And it, nothing was ever enough for them. What sort of information did they ask you to provide? It's a lot, because I sent over a whole wad of paper, like a whole box, a pa- you know, of 10 years' worth of information that they wanted. Bank statements, tax payments, council, council tax, everything you can, everything but the kitchen sink. So I can tell you what they refused, you know, they, they went through a whole list. I don't know, you haven't got my reasons for refusal letter. This is how, you know, they, they word it. So that is very, very callous, callously written without any consideration of what the impact that would have on someone like me who's been here all their lives, 55 years, and then told literally that you, you never even existed. You, you know, you were never even important. You didn't even matter. That's how it feels. Have you been given any indication about what happens after the 31st of October? No. So uh, what happens after the 31st? <laughs> I mean, in, in my situation, I feel like I've been almost co- I've been coerced into a situation. I have to apply for a settlement scheme, which implies that, I've, that I'm not settled here. And then I have to be branded, you know, like, like a cattle of whether I deserve to be here or not, when it was a given for me from the beginning. Because my parents came here 
pre us going into Europe. So when I was about 12, 13 and we went into Europe, I became a citizen and I didn't need a passport. I didn't need to have citizenship. I was told that I belonged here. And so all this was like unbelievable, unthinkable. The referendum came and I was singled out. I was told other people will have a say on your future. So from feeling valued and have a sense of belonging to, say, to then be told that all I can do is just watch helplessly whilst other people who have been here less than me because I'm older than these people, who, a lot of these people who voted. I've been here a lot longer and I've contributed so much to this country that I love. And, and I have to watch, the, I, had, I, had to, I had to wait and, and watch people voting for my future. Has it made you feel differently about life in the UK? I don't know, I still believe that... Sorry. Yeah, sorry, I'm just... Oh, my God. So I, I, I still believe that, fundamentally, there's decent... You know, the, that we are a decent nation. I still believe that. It's just that we've lost our way a little bit. You know, and, and I, don't, I don't want to, I don't want to say, and give up and go, no, I'm going to live in another country. No, you know, I don't want to leave, you know. I, you know, I want to be part of, you know, being a progressive country, not a regressive one. Do you know of other EU nationals who've, who've been through similar experiences? The problem is that if you've been working here, I'm a second generation daughter of an immigrant and a lot of my friends who are in so they were born here. So the, and the people who weren't, the ones I know are Mel, <laughs> my brother. He got it straight away because he had P60s. He didn't have any breaks, you know, to have children and to be a housewife. Because I was self-employed and a volunteer for seven years, because, you know, this is, I'm a, I'm a trained counsellor, so I, I gave back to my community as well. There's no proof, you know, I can't provide what they want. And how, I mean, how, you've obviously got family here as well. Yeah, I mean, my, how, my, how, my, my what, husband's How have they British, reacted to this? My children are British, and I've been singled out with my friends. You know, it started off to be laughable. It started off as a joke because everyone's saying, oh, you know, you're going to be deported. Yeah, right, you know, it's just, you know, it wasn't, it was the unthinkable. But now the unthinkable has become the reality, my reality. And when exactly did this letter arrive? Because obviously we've had a change of prime minister. I mean, has, has, has things, have things changed dramatically in the last few months since Boris Johnson no. became prime minister? They've got progressively worse. Because this, this letter came last year, okay, before the March deadline for Brexit. Everyone was saying to me, Anna, you better apply for citizenship because, you know, you might be deported. And I thought, no, that's not going to happen. You know, it was just laugh. You know, it was so ridiculous that it was unthinkable, you know. So then I thought, okay, if Brexit happened, you know, at least, you know, I'll go for citizenship then. In 2015, I found out that they changed the law, that you had to have permanent residency before you could even apply to, for citizenship. So then this is why I've gone down that route. And then, I've, and then I was refused. So I don't even have the, the, the option to, to, have, to have citizenship in a country I've been in and has been my home for, it's been my only home all my life. And just finally, Anna, I mean, how, how has this made you feel towards Boris Johnson's government? The thing is, this isn't for me, I'm not I don't want it to be a political issue, you know. This isn't political for me, this is a human rights issue. And I don't want to be affiliated to any particular government. This is a system that needs to be more focused around just being human, you know. Being human and having, it's just so hard because I feel so incensed that the words don't even come out, you know. 
that's how that's how upsetting and hurtful it is. Thank you, Anna. Next up, what should be done about the ongoing fires in the Amazon? With an area the size of one and a half football fields reportedly being burnt every minute, how much time is left to act? In this week's magazine, Matt Ridley argues that the extent and threat of the fires has been exaggerated by the social media outrage brigade. So, what's really going on? To discuss, I'm joined by the BBC's Camilla Costa and on the line from California, Toby McGrath, Senior Scientist and Deputy Director of the Earth Innovation Institute. Toby, there's been a lot of press coverage of the Amazon fires. Can you start by outlining how bad exactly you think things have been? Initially, I was, and others, were sort of caught by surprise by the huge amount of press interest. In some ways, this is a serious year. In other ways, the year is really not much different from the 10-year average. And that is a fairly low average. So, but this is the beginning of the season. It's already showing itself to be a little bit higher than usual. And the dry season lies ahead. So there's a potential for this to get worse. And that is compounded by the fact that the government has largely dismantled its capacity for monitoring and fighting fires. I think so that the magnitude of fires, etc., is apparently more or less within what, what is expected. It is, I think, one characteristic you say, it is higher than one would expect for a non-El Nino year. So the concern is really going forward from now. There are a lot of uncertainties in the data when you're dealing with monitoring fires and short-term monitoring of deforestation. Okay, those things tend to give you a relatively large error margin that then needs to be corrected through annual estimates at the end of the year. Camilla, why do you think this year the fires have made such big headlines? I think... In Brazil, at least, what really called attention was the fact that, you know, due to a very specific, as scientists have been explaining, conjunction, so to speak, a very specific combination of factors, you had some smoke from the fires in the Amazon region, not only in Brazil, but also in Bolivia, coming to larger cities like Sao Paulo and sort of darkening the sky. So this this called people's attention to what was happening. But obviously, as Toby had said, the Amazon has been quite the hot topic in Brazil in the past couple of years, no pun intended. And it is indeed an, an average year in terms of fire, sort of around the average. But you also have to consider that just a few years ago, Brazil was celebrating the fact that deforestation had really fallen, like drastically for a good period over there of like eight years. In the past few years, at least since 2013, deforestation has been growing again, sort of ups and downs, really swinging up and down. But there's a growth tendency in the past few years. So this year is still sort of within the average, but in a tendency of growth. So already not that great. And obviously you have the Bolsonaro factor. So some actually former environment minister ministers have been saying that fires happened in the Amazon and they have been happened and they, they have even been worse than they have been this year. But what you've never had was a president that the government would look the other way, so to speak. And what should we make of Bolsonaro's decision to reject the G7 aid that was offered? Well, analysts in Brazil have been talking a lot about how Bolsonaro a bit much like Trump, 
keeps talking to a very specific constituency, to a very specific group of people who have elected him, who have expected him to maintain some of his most radical positions, right? So he keeps talking as if he was still in campaign, much like Trump did in his now first two years of mandate. Now, what some people say is that the government has mishandled the situation, the fact that the government has taken too long to respond to the fires. The government has first minimized the data, even called the official data lies, didn't really help. When the international response came, some analysts are saying as well that the the whole business of Macron talking about the idea that the Amazon would be open for interference or that international interference in the Amazon would be desirable also didn't really help, they say, sort of the crisis because Bolsonaro relies a lot on feelings of nationalism. So now this sort of, in, the way, in a way, Macron's discourse gave Bolsonaro and, and his supporters some of what they needed to say, you know, they want to interfere with the Amazon. We can't let this happen. Mm. I mean, Toby, do you think this is as much a political issue as it is an environmental one? Yeah, I think it's important to also recognize that the rural lobby, which includes a lot of the farmers and ranchers that are working in the Amazon, were a main base of support. And they have serious complaints about the, the forest code, the fact that they are only allowed to clear 20% of their land on their property, and, and other environmental factors that, that seriously constrain, in their perception, their production. The government has basically relied on command control mechanisms. Uh, NGOs and some state governments are, are seeking to develop market mechanisms which can help reinforce and support these measures. But what's lacking here are measures that are positive incentives for producers to comply with these regulations. And that has not happened. And many farmers feel unfairly demonized by this process. Uh, The forest reserve, the area that they cannot clear on their property, increased from 50 to 80 percent in the 1990s. And so a farmer that was legal at 50 was illegal at 80, and there was no compensation, no mechanism, and they were responsible for reforesting. No, no mechanism was ever put in for that extra 30%. So there's a, a feeling of, of sort of being jerked around by producers that adds to the problem now and has generated their support for Bolsonaro and has also one of the reasons that Bolsonaro has taken the stance he has regarding deforestation in the Amazon. Camilla, you obviously presumably spend a lot of time looking at both Brazilian media and Western media. Have you noticed a difference between how the fires have been covered? I would say that in in foreign media, there has been a lot of maybe a little bit of a dramatic enhancement of the problem. Sometimes you read foreign media and I keep thinking if I wasn't more knowledgeable about the subject, I would think the Amazon is going to burn in two days completely. And that's not really going to happen. On the other hand, it's important to call attention to the situation that you have now, especially if we're talking so much about climate change and if we understand the importance that an ecosystem like the Amazon has on at least delaying climate change. So, you know, that's, that's I think, the difference. Obviously, the Brazilian media will give you more nuance because, you know, we, we actually 
know the information or we're, we're talking to those people over there. And what Toby said is one of those, I say, gray areas, because it's true. Some farmers do feel demonized and jerked around by, you know, with, by the government. And it's true that many of the laws that the government has put in place hasn't, haven't been accompanied by actual mechanisms that would, you know, that would push farmers to put them into practice, giving positive incentives, really, in a positive way. So it, sometimes it seems like they were made not to, be, not to be put in practice, really. Because what happens is, some of those farms and some and a part of the agribusiness really doesn't really want to put them in practice in the first place, doesn't really see that this is important. And another part doesn't really have a good incentive, doesn't really know why or how they should put this in practice. You even have some big agribusiness representatives now saying, look, guys, the truth is that we don't need any more deforestation to increase the production in Brazil. We can do this via modernization of what we already do. We can do this via a number of ways. The government you know, could be putting in practice a lot more of a positive incentive system. There's, there's a million of ways that we could do this that do not involve us messing with the forest and with conservation so we can all live together here. And Toby, just finally, how do the Brazil fires fit into wider global climate patterns? Yeah, I mean, Amazon fires, or, or you know, more specifically, Amazon deforestation, is potentially a very critical factor in, in our climate change issues, primarily because it represents us, you know, somewhere between 15 and, and perhaps as high as 20% of carbon emitted to the atmosphere. But that piece is, is a much larger piece of the reductions that are needed to avoid really sort of catastrophic climate change. So they can play a very strategic role in keeping us within a range of what's more or less considered manageable climate change. And so in that sense, they're very important. And much effort has been made through work on carbon credits, the Red Plus agenda, work with corporations to basically create market pressures and incentives for, for slow, slowing and in reducing deforestation, plus a range of government programs that have all come into place over recent years and are increasingly have the potential to be effective. I think the new piece that's coming in now is the possibility of the California's Tropical Forest Standard being approved by the legislature and being implemented in California. This will then create a world-class system and standard for essentially offsets from California businesses to countries that are complying and meeting the standards for conserving forests. And if I can, I would also point out that scientists that have been studying the Amazon do say that those fires fit a global pattern of climate change because the forest is becoming more flammable. So the rising in temperatures combined with deforestation, but also by other means, has been making it so that the dry seasons last longer in more parts of the forest, which is already an ecosystem that's not really prepared for fire, in which fire is not natural, so it's, it's making the forest a bit more susceptible to fires and to actually fires spreading quickly. So it, they, they, have, they have a devastating effect. So it's kind of a cycle effect there. Fires make the forest drier, the forest burns easier, temperature rises, makes the forest drier, etc., etc. Yeah, I think the important point there, though, is that 
that a lot of that vulnerability is re- related to human interventions. For example, logging, clearing small patches of forest, and then these small forest, these fires that creep along the forest floor, very low levels, but they're sufficient to be able to kill off big trees with thin bark that are not, that are not adapted to a fire regime. And with that, then you begin this whole cycle of opening up the forest, making it drier and more vulnerable to subsequent fires. And we do not know exactly what the area of the Amazon is that has been damaged. And at least, if, and for right now, we, that's very difficult to monitor at this point. We can find out later when trees start dying in large patches and we have these fire scars. So there's a lot of unknown here about really what, what the impact of these fires is. Thank you, Toby and Camilla. And finally, homelessness. Over the years, Adam Holloway, the MP for Gravesham, has spent months living on the streets trying to find out what causes homelessness. He writes about his experiences in the magazine this week, arguing that our unwillingness to confront uncomfortable truths means that we end up treating only the symptoms of homelessness rather than its causes. Adam joins me now alongside Lorna Nolan, who runs a sanctuary homelessness shelter in Gravesham. Adam, you're a Member of Parliament, but you say in your piece in The Spectator this week that in total you've spent about five months sleeping rough. Can you tell us how that happened and the lessons that you learned from it? Yeah, so I, so back in the early 90s, I made three documentaries for ITV where I tried without cheating to live out on the streets. And what really shocked me when I did it then was how you had people who were properly mentally ill. I mean, I remember seeing a guy drinking from a from a puddle like a dog near Charing Cross Station and hundreds and hundreds of people just kind of walked past him so that was a big lesson of the first one then I did uh, a week in uh, in New York which is altogether a very different proposition from the UK and then I did another ITV documentary a year or so ago and the odd night out here and there most recently about a month ago but my main conclusion from all of it is that the people who are absolutely least able to look after themselves in our society are the ones who end up on the street. And that really, it can't be right that it's the drug addicted and the mentally ill, because they're, they're literally the people who are least able to fend for themselves. And we need to find, you know, a, a more rational way of dealing with this rather than just treating it all about being not having a home. It's not, you know, homelessness is merely a symptom of a bigger problem, mostly mental health and drug addiction. Lorna, you run the sanctuary shelter. Is what Adam's saying resonating with your own experience? Uh, Yes, unfortunately it is because we have discovered over the last, especially four years, that we've dealt with an estimated 600 or individual cases. From the rough sleeping perspective, we've had 67 that have stayed with us over the winter months for four months this year just alone, with at least a quarter of those being ladies that are actually out there on the street for various reasons. But one of the main concerns we've had is the rise in mental health and also addictions. And addictions come in many forms. It's not just alcohol, it is drug addiction of all types of medication and prescribed medication. And actually the rise in people who are taking pregabalin or gabapentin, which, of course, as you know, has just been recently declassified. Adam, one of the striking bits about your piece is when you say, if you give money to a beggar, you're almost certainly enabling the addiction that put them on the street, and then, and then you basically say the public should stop giving cash to beggars. I mean, why, why exactly do you say that? Because that's exactly what I've observed, and it's, I think if you speak to 
virtually any of the homeless charities, I think they'll agree that when the public give money to beggars, very often, or not very often, mostly, this is to pay for an addiction. Now, let's not be let's not be too hard on people. I mean, if you're a, if you're a heroin addict, you've got a very serious problem, and you desperately need those drugs. So, you know, I'm not sort of being hard on on the addict here at all. I'm just I'm just telling the reality that if you give one of these kids round Victoria Station twenty quid, you've just bought you know, a little bag of heroin for them. That's the reality. So w- what happens is we are, you know, through the kindness and decency and generosity of the public, we're, we're perpetuating this addiction. And we may be making ourselves feel a little bit better, but actually what these people need is proper treatment and proper help so they can try and patch their lives back together, not to spend decades getting worse and worse so that we can feel a bit better throwing them 10 quid every, you know, couple of days. I mean, Adam, people understandably want to help when they see people who are homeless on the street. I mean, what what can people do if, if not actually giving money to the people? Well, I, I, th- I think as a sort of society, we need to grow up because we, you know, each side of the political divide likes to sort of, you know, call the, call the other names. And, you know, but, but the reality is, as I said at the beginning, homelessness is, generally speaking, a symptom of another problem until we start actually treating homeless people as individuals rather than just sort of an amorphous mass called the homeless and actually you know appreciate that different people have different problems and try to help them out of those problems we're going to get absolutely nowhere and Lorna I mean we've got an MP here with us what would you ask the government to do to help the homeless I think we've encountered so many we've looked at obviously statistics from various other homeless charities but we know as a local charity that just putting someone in a room with four square walls is not the answer. That actually what they do need is the support to be ongoing. We also have looked at what we can do as a charity and we've decided that we will continue to support people who are willing to engage. Now, a lot of other agencies do that, but we keep the support going by actually seeing them on the street as well as in the shelter. And this has been something that we've taken forward and we're now looking at a support plan that these guests will sign up to. We don't call them clients, we call them guests. They come into our home and basically they are doing, as sanctuary, they're signing up to say that this is what they're hoping to change. And even a small difference, like being able to go down to the job centre and even to fill out a form for a benefit is a big step for some people. And that's what we're hoping will happen. The other side is we're also signposting them to other agencies and charities that can help them with these addictions, that actually they will sign up to them. And we will continue to do that as long as we possibly can. Just finally, Adam, one other interesting bit about your piece is where you talk about people who voluntarily choose to sleep on the streets. Can you tell us a bit about that? Yeah, I mean, I think there are there are a very very small number of people for whom that is that is actually a choice that they that they make. But I mean, I, I think a, a more a, a important thing, perhaps, to end this on, is to talk about firstly how certainly in London, central London, well over half the homeless people are foreign nationals. I think I think today in my own constituency, sixteen people are sleeping out. Ten of them are drug addicts, but four of them are also foreign nationals. And then, then finally, you know, we, we are adding to our population at the rate of, you know, two or 300,000 people 
every year from immigration and also from births outstripping deaths. And we're not building enough homes. So inevitably, who's actually going to pay the price of that? It's going to be the people at the very bottom of our society who are least able to look after themselves. So we need to start treating these people like individuals and have a grown-up approach to people's problems rather than just lumping everyone together and talking about the homeless. Thank you, Adam and Warner. And that's it for this week. As ever, if you pick up this week's issue, you can read everything we've talked about, as well as James Forsyth on the prorogation of Parliament, Lionel Shriver on progressive art, and Prudy's diary. Plus, if you subscribe to the magazine via spectator.co.uk forward slash voucher, we'll throw in a £20 Amazon voucher. Thank you for listening, and please do join us again next week. (laughs) 